Our Father, as we bow here before you, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come and praise you, to worship you. And Lord, as we pray now, there are many that are lifting up requests. And I I know, Father, that we come in faith believing that you hear, that you care, and that you answer. So, Lord, our prayer now is that not only would you hear, but that you would indeed move in the lives of our people. That, Father, things would begin to happen and needs would be met and healing would take place and guidance and whatever's needed. And, Lord, I pray that as we open up the Word and go through the remainder of our service, that you would help us to see it, that understand it, and that, Father, as we do that, that your Holy Spirit would take it and apply it to our hearts. Lord, we want to change. We want to be different. We want to be drawn closer to you. And Lord, I pray that if there's one here this morning who's doubting their salvation, they don't quite understand how it all fits together, that, Father, somehow before this service is through today, that your Holy Spirit would open up their hearts and minds to understand. So, Lord, we give you this time. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you all be seated? Why did everybody get enough to eat? All right, everybody got in a seat? Okay. Now, here's the deal. We'll feed you on one condition, that you don't get full and go to sleep on me. All right? If I see you nodding off, there's no more breakfasts, okay? We won't do it again next year. Okay, I'm going to begin by telling you a story. There was a football team, a college football team, playing a game one time, and they had received the kickoff, and they were back at their one-yard line. They were pinned back against their one-yard line. The coach looked around because his a few plays earlier, his quarterback, his first-string quarterback, had gone down and was out for the game. His second-string quarterback, a few weeks earlier, had gone down. He was out. The only thing left, as he looked around, was his third-string quarterback. This kid had never played in a college game other than just kicking because he was also their kicker. So he brings him over, and he says, Now, Johnson, here's what I want you to do. We're on our one-yard line. All I want you to do, we've got a minute left to go in the game. The score is tied. I just want to get it out where we can punt it away and hopefully go into overtime. He says, so just run the big fullback, Kowalski. He said, you run him two times, and hopefully he'll get it out, and then I want you to punt it. Don't wait until fourth down because I want to try to catch him off guard and pin him back. So you got that, Johnson? Tell me what I just said. I'm going to run Kowalski twice, then I'm going to punt. All right, that's all you need to know. Now go in and get it done. So the kid goes in. First play of the game, he hands it off to the big fullback, Kowalski, and lo and behold, a hole opens up, and Kowalski goes for 50 yards. I mean, he blasts through there. He's down to the 50-yard line. The crowd's going wild. The little quarterback's so proud of himself for handing that ball off so cleanly. And so the, the next play, he hands off to Kowalski again. He goes 45 yards. They're down on the five-yard line. The crowd is going berserk. The coaches are thinking, my goodness, that we got the game in the bag now. We're going to win. The little quarterback's looking over the coach. He doesn't see anything. The coach is jumping up and down. So the little quarterback gets up under. He moves back, and he punts the ball. He punts the ball. Now, he, the, everybody in the crowd is, is just, there's a hush that falls over the crowd. He runs to the sidelines. The, the, the coach is livid. He says, what were you thinking? He said, I was thinking, what a dumb coach we've got. <laughs> now, listen, here's the point of that little story, that there is always times in our lives where we just seem to make the wrong decision. We can't just make the right one no matter what the circumstances. And it's also true spiritually speaking. 
how many times have we made the wrong decision spiritually? Uh, we just seemed like there was the right decision out there, and we made the wrong one no matter what we heard, no matter how, how, what was transpiring, we just did it wrong. And when it comes to salvation and understanding forgiveness, understanding who Christ is and what he did, I think that this is also true of us as well, because a lot of people go through their whole lives, and they've never made the right decision. They've heard it. They've come so very, very close to understanding and receiving Jesus Christ and having forgiveness. But it, inevitably, they seem to always make the wrong decision. Now, as you look into the Scriptures, what you find is that there are plenty of examples of men and women in the, in the Old and New Testament both who have made the wrong decision. It doesn't matter what opportunities they've had. It doesn't matter who they are. It just seems like, given the opportunity, they always seem to make the dumbest and the wrong, most wrong decision they can possibly make. And you know, as I think through Scripture, there are plenty of examples of that. But one of the, the ones that has always intrigued me is Judas. Judas is a guy who made the wrong decision no matter how much information, no matter how many opportunities he had. Now, you probably have never heard an Easter sermon preached on Judas before, but today you will. You know, besides the name Adolf Hitler, I can't think of another name that probably conjures up as many negative reactions as the name Judas. I don't know of any babies named Judas. Now, I could be wrong. You may be in here today and say, well, my name's Judas, and that's okay. But by and large, what happens is parents don't necessarily choose that name first off, because of all that it, it, it has around it. Judas was the one that betrayed Christ. He was the one that sold him basically for 30 pieces of silver. It's not something that we like to be reminded of. It's not somebody that we lift up as, as somebody that is a good example in the Scriptures. And it's, here's the sad part about it, because when you look at old Judas, here was a prime example of somebody that came so close, so close to the truth, he came so close to understanding the truth, but yet he made a wrong decision. It was the foolish thing that he did. And it wasn't just that one decision, but it seemed like Judas didn't have the ability for something, some reason to make the right decision. Now, like I said before, we are all guilty of that in every given situation in life. But what I want to look at today is not just all the other situations where people make foolish decisions, where they never seem to make the right one no matter what. I want to talk to you today about that in regard to salvation. I want to talk to you today about making the right decision when it comes to the forgiveness that Christ offers to you and me, um, what Easter is all about and understanding that and making the right decision. And the reason that I'm doing this is because I know that on any given Sunday, there are people in here who may not have ever put their faith in Jesus Christ. They may still be filled with questions about what all that means and what have you. But I know that especially on Easter, that's the case. Because on Easter, a lot of people choose to go to church when they don't otherwise go to church. And there's, that's fine. We, we welcome you here and we love you that you're here. And I hope you enjoy your visit here with us. But I also know that because of that, they come with a lot of questions and a lot of doubts and a lot of uncertainties. So today what I want to do is to look at Judas. And I want to see this this. Point. I want to answer this question. I want to see why it is that Judas missed the truth. Because I, I want to see how that relates to you and me. Because Judas's problem is the same problem that some of you have. What Judas struggled with are the same struggles that some of you have. 
In the same reason why Judas could never put it together and make the right decision is because of the same reasons we struggle with today. And so I want to ask and answer this question. Why why is it that some of us today get so close to understanding salvation, get so close to making the right decision, coming so close to, to understanding who Christ is, and yet we don't ever seem to get it? Because my guess here, okay, is that a lot of you have been what we call Christianized. You've gone to church, you've heard this, you've heard other things, but in your mind you've never been able to put it together and you've never understood it. Maybe you have questions about it. And that's my job. My job is to help you to understand the answers to those questions according to the Scripture. And so as a pastor of this church, I stand before you today to try to help you understand what Scripture says. If you have questions or doubts about this after everything's said and done, then I want you to come and talk to me. I want you to come and talk with me and ask me anything you have weighing on you and give me that opportunity to talk with you more about this. But for the next few minutes, let's look and see what it is that happened to old Judas and why he made the wrong decision and see if you don't see yourself in Judas, just a little bit at least. Here are the opportunities that the boy had. Now, you think about Judas in the Bible, man, he had every opportunity. Here they are. He was, first of all, he was one of the original 12 disciples. Jesus chose him. He knew who he was. He knew what he was going to do, but he chose him anyway. And he loved uh, Judas. Judas knew the love of Christ just like the other disciples did. Jesus never made a distinction between Judas and the rest of them. He never singled him out, set him over here, and he said, here, this is for you guys, but, but not him. He was always part of the group, always part of their fun, their activities, their ministry. Everything that they did, they did together, and he knew that, and he saw that. Think about the miracles. The miracles alone that Judas watched and observed. Think about this. The feeding of the 5,000. When that great miracle, when the little boy had the loaves and the fishes, his mama had packed for lunch, and Jesus takes it and multiplies it. The Bible says that he fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, probably 15,000 or more people there on the mountainside that day. And the disciples spread it out and fed everybody and had 12 baskets left over. Judas was there. Judas saw that. He experienced it. He marveled like the rest of the, the disciples did. Whenever Jesus came walking on the water late one night in the middle of a storm and the boat is being almost ready to capsize and Jesus gets into the boat and they all saw him. Judas saw Jesus walking on the water. Judas saw what happened when he got into the boat. Judas saw how the storm quieted down. He saw all of that, just like the rest of the disciples did. When Jesus healed the sick, the blind that he put his hands on and, and just spoke the word and they, their sight came back. The deaf, he just touched them and they could hear again. Those with leprosy, we looked at last week, the ten lepers, that Jesus just spoke the word and they were cleansed, they were healed. The lame that walked, all of these people were healed over and over and over again. All Every time Judas was there, the Bible says that there were so many things that were done by Christ that they couldn't even write them all down. I can't imagine how many miracles Jesus performed. And in every one of them, there was Judas. And he was looking and he was seeing this. But here's the part, I think, that probably baffles me the most. And that is that Judas himself had the power of God to perform miracles himself. 
Now watch this. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is ready to send the 12 out on a, a missionary expedition. And here's what it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples, that's all of them, called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Now look at this, because this is what Judas did as one of the 12. He had been given authority that he could go and drive out evil spirits. He could lay his hands on somebody and they could be healed. Every disease and sickness, Judas had been given the authority by Christ, at least on this one trip, and maybe more, we're not sure, but at least this one trip, that they could do that. Now, here's old Judas, and he goes out and he performs these miracles himself. He experiences firsthand the power of God. Not only that, but Judas had also been taught and told by Jesus Christ all of the things of the deep truths that that people didn't understand. He knew about the resurrection. This is the third time I'm about to read for you now, the third time that Jesus has point blank told them that he's going to die in Jerusalem and be resurrected. Look at what he says in Matthew chapter 20, verses uh, 17 through 19. Here's what Jesus said. He said, now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On his way, he took the twelve aside and said to them, now this is Judas too, We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, you got that, guys? Do you understand it? Oh, yeah, we understand it. Well, they didn't. The Bible tells us they didn't understand it. I'm going to be mocked, flogged, crucified, and resurrected. Third time I've told you this. Judas knew that. And still, after all of that, after even seeing Lazarus raised from the dead, all the miraculous things and the experiences that he had, Judas did what he did. Here's the story just in this one verse. Judas had gone to to the chief priests and made a deal with them that he would betray him. And it says here in Matthew 26, verse 15, it says, and he asked him, he said, what, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, 30 pieces of silver that they gave him. Now, there's a lot of things that transpired. You know, they come to the garden, the soldiers take him. They didn't know who he was. They didn't know who he, what he looked like. All the times that Jesus was out preaching, the Bible tells us that either they were afraid to go up there and get him because of the crowds, they were afraid they would rebel against them, or Jesus secretly slipped out among the crowd and they couldn't find him. The soldiers needed somebody to identify him, so Judas said, look, I'll kiss him on the cheek. The one that I kiss on the cheek, that's him. And so he does that. He goes into the garden that night while Jesus is praying and the disciples are there. He kisses him on the cheek. The soldiers are able to identify him and they take him. Now, here's what happened next. They go. They take him through these trials during the course of the wee hours of the morning when nobody's around. They end up condemning him and ultimately crucifying him. But here's what I want you to see. And don't miss this verse, okay, because it's very key. It's in Matthew chapter 27, verse 3. It says, when Judas, 
who had betrayed him saw that Jesus was condemned. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Now, you got to catch this, okay? Judas, I don't believe, wanted to put Jesus to death. That was never his intent. Because it says here, when he saw that Jesus was condemned, all of a sudden he's overwhelmed with guilt and remorse. He goes and tries to give the money back. I didn't mean that, guys. We, you know, we got to change this. And they said, no way, it's, it's a done deal now. And so in verse 5, chapter 27, verse 5 of Matthew, it says, so Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Then he went away and hanged himself. He hanged himself because of the overwhelming guilt that he felt. Now, guys, here's the question that has to be answered as you think about this. Given all that Judas knew, all that Judas had experienced, the question then becomes this. Why would he do it? Why would Judas do what he did? And here's what I think, okay? And this, again, is just my opinion. It wasn't for the money. He was willing to give back the money. It wasn't the money. He just decided to make a little bit on it. But here's what I believe was Judas's intent in doing this. What he thought was this. You see, all of the things that Judas had been taught, all the things that he had heard, all of the things that he experienced, he knew full well that Jesus Christ had the power to do miraculous things. And what he wanted more than anything else was for somebody to come in, just like many of the Jews wanted, for somebody to come in to be their savior, which meant to them, rid us of those Romans who have control of us. They've conquered us years ago. We're under their control. It's a hard life. We don't want to be in servitude to Rome. Judas kept hearing love and grace and forgiveness and peace, and he didn't want any part of that. What he wanted was to push Jesus to the point where he would move and respond and work his miraculous powers to rid Israel of Roman control. If they lay their hands on him, they've never done this before. If they can lay their hands on him, then he'll respond. Then he'll quit talking about all this love and grace stuff, and he'll do something to get us out of this. And when then the Bible says that when he saw that Jesus went along with it, when he saw that he was condemned and was going to be killed, that's when he said, whoa, 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 I didn't mean that. I didn't want that to happen. Now, I don't believe that it was his intent to see Jesus die. I believe the scriptures teach us the exact opposite. But nonetheless, that's what he did. Now, then the question becomes this when it comes to Judas. We hear this discussed back and forth all the time. Was Judas forgiven? And was Judas a believer? Was Judas in heaven? Things like that. Now here's, let me show you this verse and then we'll talk about this. It's in Acts chapter 1 verse 25. Peter is talking. Judas has committed, you know, hung himself. Jesus has resurrected and ascended. The disciples now have to find another person to take his place. And here's what it says. They're choosing another man in verse five to, uh, 25 to take over the apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Now, Peter's saying there that Judas is in hell. He's saying he went to where he belongs. And we don't know for sure. There's no indication to believe that he was otherwise. 
Now, what is it that happened to him? What is it that, that, that caused him to, to, to do this and, and so forth? Well, I believe it's very simple. He just wanted Jesus on his terms. You see, he wanted Jesus, but it had to be on his terms. I want the Jesus that's going to have power and, and, and conquer my enemy and, and that sort of thing. I don't want this Jesus that talks about love and grace and peace and forgiveness. I want something else. Now, guys, the reason why this is so important is because so many of us are in that boat. We want Jesus on our terms. We don't like this idea of a Savior. We want, you know, we want Jesus just to get, dole out gifts to us and be kind to us and forgive everybody and let everybody go to heaven no matter what we do. And, it, and, and it's kind of like this fairy tale image of Jesus, like the genie in the bottle almost. And some of us have other ideas of who he is and so forth. But the question, you know, as we think about this, okay, if, if Judas was lost, if Judas did all these miraculous things, how did he do that if he was lost? That doesn't make sense. We don't believe that a person has the power to do that if they're lost. Let me show you a passage of Scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 7, and it's Jesus talking. Listen to what he says. He says, not every, it's in chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, he's talking about the end of time, on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles. Now catch verse 23. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Now you learn several things here. There are people that have performed miracles, miraculous feats, and Jesus said, I never knew you. You've never been one of mine. Well, how can that be? Well, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. But I do know that it happens. This is why it's so important that you understand the Scripture and not believe everything you see. Anything you see that is contrary to the teaching of Scripture, you stay with the Scriptures because there's a lot of things that can trick us and fool us. How could it be? Because it says right here, it says the one that did all these things, he's lost. He's, he's, I never knew him. But he says in verse 21 here, he says, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. All right, now this begs the question, and we've got to deal with this. Here's an important point. What in the world is the will of the Father? Because these people were seemingly very religious people, doing a lot of good things. So if that's not the will of the Father that gets a person into heaven, then what is the will of the Father that Jesus is talking about? Because that's what we need to understand. And here's the answer. It's Jesus, uh, he gave it to us right here when he was speaking. In John chapter 6, verse 40, it says, For my Father's will. <laughs> All right, be quiet. Let me, let me speak. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. Now, this is my Father's will, 
It's not that you have the ability to do things. It's not that you're a good person. It's not that you try hard. It's not that you have good intentions. It's not that you go to church all the time. It's none of these things. That's not what the will that gets you into heaven is. Here it is, that you look upon Jesus, you believe, you trust in him, and you have eternal life. Now, folks, listen to me, because this is the one thing that Judas did not do. Judas was right there, so close tasted the goodness of God, but yet Judas never trusted him. He never cared about the salvation that that Jesus was offering. He never cared about grace and mercy and love. He was looking for something else. I want him on my terms. I want Jesus on my terms. Don't tell me about all that stuff about dying on the cross and blood and sacrifice. I've heard this so many times from people. I want to believe in a Jesus that's kind and gracious to everybody and just shows us the way and we just are good people and we get there. Everything's hunky-dory. And yet that's not the Jesus in the Bible. And here's old Judas holding on to something that he thought was true and it's not. Because Jesus said it's by faith. And that's the only way. Now listen to this. We need to deal with this, okay? Because people are, are confused about this. What in the world is faith? See, that's an important question. How do I define faith? What is it? What is it that God is saying to me that I'm supposed to be doing here? Well, the Bible again has the answer. Now look at this, okay? It's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. And the author of Hebrews says this. He says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Confidence and assurance. Now, understand this, okay? Because when God says to us over and over and over again, some 150 times in the New Testament that we're saved by faith or believing, he's talking about you and I coming to a point in life where we are confident in Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, and we believe with all of our hearts that's enough to save our souls. And we have the assurance that that's all it takes. Now, guys, this is so important because so many people want to come at it and come to Jesus and say, Nah, I want you on my terms. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a good person, and I'm not even convinced I need a Savior. I want Jesus on my terms. I want him to be an illustration of goodness that I can follow, and that's enough. And God says, No, that Jesus came as a sacrifice. That Jesus went to the cross and God the Father laid upon him all of your sins. From the time you're born until the time you die, everything is laid there. The guilt of all of it is there. The sacrifice is made. It was your suffering that he took. It was your pain. It was your death. And then God looks at you and me and he says to us that when you put your faith, you have your confidence in that sacrifice, then I give you as a gift eternal life. Now, folks, understand this, okay? Faith is when you come to Jesus Christ and you put your trust in him to save you and get you to heaven to the exclusion of everything else. And that's the key phrase, to the exclusion of everything else. Confidence is believing it's enough. Assurance is knowing what's going to happen. Yes, someday we're going to leave this world and be with him Because of what he's done. 
It's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus and my good works or Jesus and going to church or, or whatever we try to put up there. Listen to what the Lord himself said in John fourteen six. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Nobody. You say, well, I, I don't believe that. Nobody. It doesn't matter what you think. Nobody comes to the Father except this way. This is the only way. So then we've got to ask the question then, okay? We'll get down to some application here. How can a person, how can a person get so close to understanding the truth and yet miss it? How can a person come so close and, and be what I said earlier, Christianized, but yet really not understand the truth. How can that happen to a person? Now, in my experiences of dealing with people, there are several things that happen, several mindsets, I guess you could call it, that people enter into that prevents them from coming to Christ. Now, you may be one of these, and it may hit home with you, so just listen, okay? One of the ones that I deal with when I deal with people is this attitude of thinking, well, I hear what you're saying, but that's just too easy. See, that's just too easy. It's got to be more than that. It can't be Jesus died on the cross and that's it and God's going to save me and give me a free gift. I don't buy into that. It's too easy. Listen to what the Scripture says. I want to read this verse to you. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. It's out of the King James, okay? All the verses I use are NIV, New International. This one just simply captures, I believe, some of the clarity that I want to get through here. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he says this, But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through the subtlety, or through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. I'm worried about you, he says, because just like the serpent tricked Eve in the garden, I'm worried that you have been tricked and drawn away from the simplicity that is in Christ. So many times this is what happens to people. They're, they're drawn to Christ. They feel the, the, the urge. They need something. They want something. And then religion gets a hold of them. And then they start thinking, well, that gospel you preach over there, that's just too easy. It has to be more difficult than that. God wouldn't do that for somebody. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul again writing to the Corinthians. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Foolishness. Some of you sitting in here today, you've come here on Easter morning, and to you, the message of salvation, that Jesus died, buried, and rose again is foolishness to you. It is. And do you know how I know that you are lost? Is because it says right here that whoever believes that the message of the cross is foolishness, they are perishing. They're lost. Some of us are educated beyond our intelligence. We think too much. We try to figure everything out. We want every detail answered. And guys, I'm going to tell you something. The Bible is full of explanations if you just look. 
but you will never ever have all of your questions answered. We come to Jesus Christ based on what we see and hear, what we know to be true, and we make a decision that I'm going to trust Him. My confidence is in Him. When I stand before God someday and He says to me, Dave, why should I let you in heaven? I'm not going to tell him what a good man I am. I'm not going to tell him all the things I did. I'm not going to talk about being a preacher. I'm going to say, God, I'm, I deserve to get in because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's all. It covered me. You paid it all. You died for me. Nothing I could do could add to that, Lord. This, that's it. It's that easy. It is a gift indeed. Don't let the simple truth of the gospel trip you up. Don't let it confuse you. So this is one mindset that people have, that they get close, but they miss it because they think it's too simple. Here's the other one that I run into a lot, and that is the people say, whenever you try to share Christ with them, they say, well, I'm a good person. I'm good. I don't need this. And I really resent you telling me that I'm a sinner. And you know what? They're right. They are good people. There are many, many morally good, upstanding citizens. They give to the poor. They're very charitable. They work in their community. They go to church on a regular basis. And you know what? In their minds, when they stand before God someday, and he were to say to them, why should I let you in heaven? That's what they're going to tell him. They're going to say just that. And when the Lord looks at them, he's going to say, well, what about your sin? And then they'll make some story up or some plea, and God's going to say, no, you still have to pay the price. I paid it over here, but you rejected it. Now you've got to pay for it, which is eternity in hell. You're lost. It's not your goodness. Listen to these verses real quick, and I'll bring this to a close quickly. In Romans chapter 3, in verses 19 and 20, Paul's writing to the Romans, and here's what he says to the Roman church. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now stop there, okay? Because Paul is talking about, and maybe you don't understand, but the law, as it is portrayed in Scripture, is the Ten Ten Commandments. They're really all of the commandments. But let's do this for sake of argument here. Let's read this and put in there instead of the law, because that's a confusing term, let's just put the Ten Commandments, okay? Now, we know that whatever the Ten Commandments say, they say to those who are under the Ten Commandments, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the work of the Ten Commandments. Rather, through the Ten Commandments, we become conscious of sin. Now, guys, don't miss this, okay? Because if you think you're good enough to get to heaven because you can obey the commandments, God says they were never given for that purpose. God gave you the commandments to show you you're a sinner and to hold you accountable to lead you to a position where you say, I can't do this. I need a Savior. I need a substitute. So if you think that the righteousness to get into heaven comes from the Ten Commandments, you're mistaken. And here's the problem. Here's the reason why. It's in James chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law, Ten Commandments, 
and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking it all. Now think about this. You're going to sit there and tell me that you're good enough. You're going to sit there and tell me that you're a morally upstanding person. You don't cheat on your wife. You pay your taxes. You don't, you don't uh, cheat people. You do all of these things. And I'm telling you that according to the Scriptures, that if you do one thing that is sinful in your entire life, God says you are as guilty as if you broke it all. Think about this. And it just goes to show you God never gave you the commandments to make you righteous. God gave you the commandments to show you you're a sinner. And once you understand that, then you come to Christ. Listen to what it says now in verse 23. Romans 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the verdict, every one of you. Every one of us has sinned. And if we've sinned, we're guilty. But now watch this, because down in verse 28, Romans 3, 28, look at what he says. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the Ten Commandments. You're justified by faith. You have confidence in what he did at the cross and the resurrection. I believe that he did it. I'm putting my confidence in that to save me. I can't do it. I'm trusting in that. Then he says, then you're justified. You're forgiven. You're clean. All right, here's the third one, the third mindset I think that people have. And that is that it's just the opposite. They don't say, I'm, I don't need it. They say, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. Man, I've heard this so many times. People say, I'm not good enough. Whenever we go to prison, and I always enjoy doing this, okay? Whenever we go to prison, you know, we go down to Huntsville and all around, and I hear this a lot because guys in prison know they're not good enough. You know, their families have told them, the judge has told them, other prisoners have told them, the guards tell them, everybody tells them, you're not good enough, you're not good enough. And honestly, deep down in their hearts, they know that. So whenever I talk to them about the Lord, they say, wait a minute, preacher, you just might as well save your breath because I'm doing 40 to life for murder. There's no way in the world I'm ever going to get to heaven. I'm not good enough. And I say, yeah, I agree with you. You're not good enough. And they kind of look at you, you know, like, wait a minute, you're supposed to tell me I am. No, I'm not going to tell you you are. You're a stinking murderer. They look at you, you know. Some people are afraid to do that. You might get beat up. I'm in prison. You know, with these, there's guards all around. They're not going to do anything. I say to this person, how good do you think you'd have to be to get into heaven? And then they start trying to explain it. They'll start telling you, well, you have to do this, you have to do that. And I'm just not that person. Hey, I appreciate that. That's good. Let me read you this verse. It says here in Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 21, verse 27. This is John talking about heaven. He says, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who dares, or I'm sorry, who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, let's look at this for a minute. I tell them, I say, look, I said, nobody's going to ever enter heaven who's done anything impure. Is that you? Well, yeah, you know it is. I, I know it's me, too. You ever done anything shameful? Well, of course. Deceitful? Told a lie? Done anything sinful in your life? Then according to what God says, you're never, ever going to enter into heaven. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, what is that, preacher? Well, let me tell you, 
This is the book with everybody's name who has put their confidence in, in Jesus Christ. Who believes that he died on a cross for them. They put their faith in him and they've trusted him. And to the exclusion of everything else, they are admitting that he's their savior. They're the ones whose names are written in the book of life. Well, how do I get that? Well, let me tell you. The Bible says that this is a gift that God gives you. God gives you this gift. And I usually carry a little pamphlet with me that I give them. I said, now let me tell you, John, whatever his name is. I'll say, here's this little pamphlet. I said, it's yours. And so he'll reach out and he'll take it, you know. And then I'll say, now, now when was this pamphlet yours? He said, well, when you gave it to me. I said, no, John. When was this pamphlet? When did it become yours? Oh, when I took it. Yeah, when you took it. It says in this verse right here, very, very truly in John 6:47. listen to this, very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. The one who believes has eternal life. John, do you believe what I just told you? Do you believe that Jesus died for you and you're willing to trust him to the exclusion of all your goodness and everything else? Yeah, I really am. I say, well, this little pamphlet that I just gave you, let's say it's salvation. According to the scripture, it's eternal life. And I hand it to you because this is what God does. God hands this to you. It's a gift. When is it yours? Well, when I take it. That's right. You're taking it right now by believing what I've just told you. You're receiving, you're accepting, you're trusting. And the light comes on. Oh, it's a gift. Now I understand. I said, now listen to me. I said, the Bible says that whosoever believes has been given, has eternal life. I said, when do you have it? Right now. It says it right here. When I believe I have eternal life right now, exactly. It's not when you die. It starts right now. Now, now listen, John, because this is so important. The Bible says that it is eternal life that you have right now. John, when does eternal life end? Well, never. That's exactly right. I said, and God says in this verse that when you believe in him, you have right now eternal life that begins and runs forever. I said, John, that's what salvation is. Salvation is the gift that God has given you. That you come to the point where you put your confidence, your trust in Him. You trust Him. You call on Him. You believe it. You can't do it yourself. It's a gift. And that's the only way you can take it. And guys, as I stand up here talking to you today... Some of you I may not see again until next Easter. Some of you I never see again because you'll die before we ever see each other again. Please understand what the truth of the gospel is. Don't be like Judas. Don't miss it because you're too self-righteous or because it's too simple or because you've been told all your life you're unworthy. Don't miss it because it's God's free gift anybody who will turn to him in faith and put their confidence in him. And this is what I'm really asking of you today, that you do that. People say to me from time to time, you know, I'll get some 
person who says to me, I'm not going to believe that. Only a fool would believe that. That's just ridiculous. I'm not going to do it. All right, I understand. But one day, you need to understand this, one day you will die. And you will wake up in hell and realize that all along you were the fool. You were the one who kept saying, no, not now. Not now. Judas kept saying with all the things that he saw, no, that's not what I want. I want something different. And he missed it. Don't let that be you. You know, right here today, I know for a fact that it's because the Bible tells us that, that whenever the Holy Spirit begins to work on somebody, the Word is preached, they hear the teaching of the Word, and they, they, the Holy Spirit works. He does His job. And I believe with all my heart that as you sit here this morning, you're feeling something. If you listen to what has been said and read the Scriptures, the Spirit does His work. And He's tugging at your heart. and He's trying to convince you, you need, to, you need to respond to this. You need to do something. You may be fighting it. You may be saying, no, it's too simple, all these things. Let me encourage you to do something. Let me encourage you just to surrender, to just say to God, I give up. I'm done fighting. I'm done running. So right now, Lord, I'm turning to you and I surrender to you. I believe what the Bible says. And I put my trust in you, my faith in you today. And right now I'm reaching out and taking this gift to be my own. And according to the scripture, God somehow puts your name in the Lamb's book of life. And you are his child. See, this is what Easter is all about. This is the message that he came, he died, he paid for our sins. And God the Father reached down the third day and raised him up to prove to the world it was enough. It's done. It's over. Don't get so close and miss it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. Now I want you to understand something as you sit here quietly. This is the opportunity for you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Right there where you sit. I don't have people come forward or make a spectacle of anybody. I'm not, don't worry about that. But right there where you sit, why don't you surrender? Why don't you stop fighting? Why don't you stop running? Why don't you just give in and say, Lord, I turn to you today and I'm trusting in you. My confidence is in you. The Bible says that whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord in faith shall be saved. That's God's promise to you. Do it this morning, right there where you sit. Let me lead you in a prayer. The prayer doesn't save you, but the prayer hopefully reflects what's in your heart. It goes like this. You can follow along. If you don't know what to say to God, let me help you. Follow along right there, okay? It goes like this. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done things to shame you. But I believe that Jesus died on a cross for me. 
and he rose the third day to prove it. I don't know all the answers, Lord, but I believe that. My confidence is in you. Thank you, Father, for this tremendous gift of salvation. With every head bowed and every eye closed, folks, I'm not going to have you come up, but I want to know who you are. And I'm just going to ask you as you sit there quietly, just slip your hand up and say, Pastor, I'm putting my faith in him today. I'm turning to him today. Anyone at all. Just slip your hand up and put it back down. Our Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you, Father, we're overwhelmed with reality of the gospel message. Lord, I pray for each one that is here, that if there's one that is reluctant or still thinking or still wondering, that, Lord, they would get these questions answered and come to you by faith. Father, I I thank you for the simplicity of the message. I thank you, Father, for what the gospel is. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who died for us. We thank you for what Easter represents. Father, help us to take that message to family and friends who don't know him. Help us to be that kind of people. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.